It's very good to be back this week. Uh, Seemed like a long week, so I forgot that we were gone last week, or I would have said, hi, missed you last week. Uh, We had the opportunity to go spend time with Brian and Melissa Barnett, Emma and Aaron, uh, at their home and at their church in Cowan. Uh, Continue to pray for Brian and Melissa. Um, Continue to visit them. If you have been, if you haven't, consider doing that. Just uh, they're a dear couple. Miss having them here, their their family. Um, And I just want to be in prayer for for Brian and Melissa. Um, Missions inside of West Virginia serving there, Webster County High School, and Brian was outlining just a a really neat gospel conversation he had been able to have with um, two of the, how did he put it? It's like some of the most ungodly rednecks in school or something like that. It was, uh, but it was good, you know, and it's those type of things um, that just just demonstrate their faithfulness. But they, as, as we all, are in need of prayer, need of fellowship. But um, let's just pray for them, and then we'll get into this. Lord, thank you also, as we prayed for many others. Thank you for Brian and Melissa, your work um, in Cowan and the surrounding areas, at the high school, at the library, in their home, uh, their coffee shop. Please bless them, encourage them, and may your... Uh, May your faithfulness be seen in their faithfulness, and may your Holy Spirit bear good fruit for your kingdom there. Amen. About a thousand introductions to not say today. Um, This is a, Keith's birthday is not until January, and Pastor Appreciation Month was last month, but I have not seen Keith more excited about a sermon that he does not have to preach uh, than this one, which I just don't think is very fair, but I understand it. Uh, he was just like, boy, it's a lot to cover in Genesis 17. I'm like, man, you know, cover what you need to cover, preach what you need to preach. He's like, ah, oh, it's circumcision piece. That's just, that's just hard. I was just like, hey, cover what you need to cover, you know, leave the rest to me. He's like, so you'll just take everything about circumcision? Yes, I will. Uh, he just rejoiced. And then I think if you rejoice after the fact, that's called gloating. Uh, but whatever. So best I could do is a, is a good pun. Well, not a good pun, but uh, instead of the significance of circumcision, uh, the significance of circumcision, that at least helps. Um, circumcision, Genesis 17. And we're just going to start there, and we're going to make our way through and look into these things and try to understand what exactly is going on and what God has for us. I am reminded of another story, stay in Genesis 17, but as I think about this text, and I was trying to think, how do, we, um, how do I put this in front of you today, and just being reminded of my own need in Christ's work for me, I, I thought of John 13. Remember John 13? Um, in the upper room, Jesus enters the upper room with his disciples, and he takes he takes not just the form of a servant, he takes the, the clothing and the act of a servant. He took off his, his garments, he wrapped himself with the servant's towel, and he went around to his disciples, whom he would die for their sins the next night, within 24 hours, uh, and he went around, and what did he do? He washed their feet. Um, and one of them had an issue with it, do you remember? Peter had an issue with it. When Jesus had gone around, he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, well then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If you're going to wash me, I, I need to be washed. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you not just Peter, but you, my disciples, you are clean, but not every one of you. And that was having to do with Judas. Um, we need to be washed by Jesus, right? And then we, we know that, and we have known that, and I know that, and I have known that. And then there are times, although we've been washed, where we're like, maybe we just need to start this whole thing over again. Maybe we need a, another full washing to which we hear the Lord say to Peter, like, if you've been washed, you don't need the full washing again. It's not your hands and your feet, everything. You don't need it head to toe. I have cleaned you, but I need to wash your feet. I think that relates to, to circumcision because what circumcision points to, which is what we're going to walk through, um, presents a need that we all have and that sometimes it feels like we just, we have again, like the first thing needs to be done again and again and again. Uh, but it's not the first thing needs to be repeated. But the work that was begun needs to be continued. That's an element of what see with circumcision today. What, uh, how should we understand circumcision? What does this, this mean? It's interesting because I mean, we're 17 chapters in and then all of a sudden uh, Moses, the Lord through Moses just drops this on us. And Abraham's not surprised. Abraham's just like, yep. And they go forward. And we'd be like, what? Like, why? You know, what, what? How did Abraham already know about this? Right? What's going on? What is circumcision? Uh, here's four points in one big sentence. If you're going to write anything down, write this down. Try to do that. Sorry, I don't have uh, anything to put in front of you other than this. Circumcision is a physical mark revealing a spiritual need fulfilled by Christ to be received by faith. Okay? Circumcision is a physical mark revealing a spiritual need fulfilled by Christ to be received by faith. Those are the four things we'll go through first aspect that circumcision was a physical mark of dedication. A physical mark of dedication. Do you guys remember what we want? We can't lose track of where we've been in Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created mankind, male and female, as his what? As his creation. And he said, this creation is my, these bear my image, right? And we said image-bearing marked out humanity as God's royal sons and daughters. You remember that? We've emphasized that this involved both a relationship with God, sons and daughters, and also ruling for God. Royal sons and daughters, ruling and relationship. Then sin distanced us from God, that affected that relationship, and it disqualified all of humanity for the rule. So we're far from God and we can't do what we were made for in that rule. We can't come near to God, we can't serve him. Interestingly, every culture 
every society, every tribe, every religion, ancient or modern, everyone recognizes some aspect of this. Every, everybody recognizes with what, whatever their view of God or no God is, whatever morality, whatever, like everybody's religious, everybody's some aspect of a theologian. It's just who we are. We can't be otherwise. But everybody says, it's kind of like, well, how I start off is not good enough to be able to come before God. I can't relate to him and I can't just on my own serve God. So every week, like, it's very clear with ancient religions because they all had what? Priests. Priests who were set apart to serve God for everybody else. And if you think about it, there were all sorts of markings and clothing and rituals and privileges for those priests, right? Some small and some uh, very, very drastic. Ancient Egypt was no exception to this. We've tried throughout our, what, 11 months, <laughs> give or take, in Genesis to kind of help us remember the context that God's people were coming out of. Context Moses was raised up in was an Egyptian context. The context that God's people, who were the original audience of Genesis, the context that they had come out of was four centuries of living in Egypt. And Egypt was an established culture with established religion and established taboos and, and restrictions and procedures and all these type of things. So even though they were a distinct people, they weren't fully Egyptian by any means. Uh, they weren't who they were going to be either. But we have to remember, like, well, what did Egypt think is a good question for us to understand aspects when we come to Genesis. So what did Egypt say about circumcision? And Egypt marked their kings and their priests, those who would represent the gods, because Pharaoh was God for his people. And then the priests functioned, right? Mediating between, standing between the gods and the people, bringing the people's sacrifices and offering them to God, receiving back from the God to the people, right? Standing in the middle. That's always what a priest does. And ancient Egypt circumcised their kings and circumcised their priests. And that's significant because they saw it as a physical mark of dedication to get them somehow closer to God. So I have questioned where did that come from, right? Like, all right, Abraham got it from that, but in the history of humanity, right? Like, where did it come from before that? And it's, I don't know. That's a piece that I'd love to know. We can only speculate, but we don't know. There's no reason to believe that anybody else prior to this in Scripture is circumcised. God's redemption plan is him restoring what we lost, including the relationship and the rule that he had originally created humanity to occupy. Since Genesis 12, who has the redemption plan focused on? Since Genesis 12, who? Abraham. Abram, or now we can call him Abraham. We're, we're done with that portion. I know Keith like rejoiced in that reading mid-text last week. I do too. God's plan has focused on Abraham. And we saw it kind of narrow down, right? Adam followed that line. Seth down to Noah to Shem. And sin continues abounding. And then through Shem, we get to uh, we get to Abraham. 
But this is all in this story of redemption that God's following, okay? That, that God is unfolding and continues to unfold throughout Scripture. In Genesis 17, when God calls Abraham to be circumcised, Keith talked about that last week, and to circumcise all the males in his household, uh, yes, his, his son and future sons, but all of his servants as well, I think God is implying what he would later state to the Israelites in Exodus 19.6, that what he is doing in calling and blessing Abraham and in calling him to circumcise as part of that, Exodus 19.6, this is the promise that God makes to all of his people, you, all of you, shall be, a, to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see the reflection? What did, why did Egypt circumcise? They, who did they circumcise? Their kings and their priests. God gives circumcision to his people so that he can lead them to be a kingdom of priests. We read in the New Testament that that's fulfilled for us. Peter uses that very language to talk to us. We are a holy nation. We are priests. We are a kingdom. We will rule with Christ. So what God brought into creation that we lost, that he is working to redeem, and it seems to be taking a long time, years after year after year after year, right? Generation after generation does find its fulfillment in Christ. But there is this physical mark of dedication that was already known in these cultures that God says, I assign that to you. And Abraham does it. And this physical mark was a big deal. Any uncircumcised male and his family would be cut off from God's people, kicked out of the camp, kicked out of the nation, or worse. This is how serious it was. Moses, who would have been circumcised, he was an Israelite, when he is returning to Egypt to redeem God's people, remember what happened? God almost killed him. Like, I mean, just like, I don't know, is there like knife to the throat? Like, is God strangling? I don't know. What, like, that's a crazy story. Why is God gonna kill Moses? You remember? Because his son wasn't circumcised. Like, you're gonna go and rescue my people, burning bush, it's amazing, right? And then they're like, they're on the way and God's like, I'm gonna kill you because you haven't circumcised your son. Like, whoa, all right? So what we read about in Genesis like starts to show itself to be serious. And then in Joshua, we read that all of the second generation of Israelites were circumcised after they crossed the Jordan before the battle of Jericho because they needed to be set apart as God's people before they would go for God. It was a kingly act to go and bring God's judgment to Jericho and I and all of these other aspects. And God was doing it, but he was doing it through his people, but not if they weren't circumcised. And he said, I wanted, that God said, do this so that I can roll away the reproach of Egypt, the stank of Egypt, that's my translation, from his people. So it's a physical mark uh, of dedication. That's what circumcision is. It's a physical mark, though, that reveals a spiritual need for change. Physical mark of dedication, that's kind of that cultural piece. But it's also a, a spiritual, it reveals a spiritual need for change. Speaking of Moses once again, uh, do you remember how Moses responded to the Lord post-miracles when God said, I want you to go and confront Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go? How did, what did Moses say? 
here am I, send me. No, he's like, uh, Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I liked my speech classes in high school because I'm me. And it was opportunities to talk. Uh, but not all of you are like that. Some of you would have rather died than go through a speech class. Or maybe you thought that you did die when you were in a speech class. Apparently, whatever speech classes Moses went through in the kingdoms of Egypt, he did not do well. And he liked being with those sheep. They didn't judge him. You didn't have to talk to him very much. Or if he did, they were like, that's my sheep impression. I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then God says, I made your tongue. I made your mouth. If I've called you, I'll equip you. And then Moses just plows forward in dedicated obedience, just like we would, right? No. He's like, I just can't do it. And he's like, all right, Aaron. Then they go to Pharaoh and they go to God's people. First meetings don't go well. Exodus 12, this is how Moses makes the same complaint to God. He said, I'm not eloquent. I can't do this. Then in Exodus 12, he says this, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And that has nothing to do with circumcision uncircumcised apparently has some sort of metaphorical significance. It, it points to something else. And for Moses here, he's just like, I just can't do it. These, these, these stupid things aren't worthy. They're not good enough. They don't work right. Spiritual need for change. Leviticus chapter 26 speaks of this same thing. Other than after Moses confesses his lips aren't circumcised, uh, we, read of, we read God using the same kind of spiritual aspect of circumcision. His people he knew would be sinful people. And because of their sin, he knew that the curses that he had spoken over them would come true. But then he's a God who's merciful, as we already talked about today. And so he says this, if my people, after they've sinned, and because of their sin, gone into an exile, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. I will remember the land. I will come back. So the stubbornness of their hearts, he calls what here? He calls it uncircumcised hearts. Hearts that would sin and needed to be changed. Circumcision is a physical mark revealing a spiritual need. Deuteronomy 10, this is now to the second generation. God says the same thing. He tells them, listen, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. What does that mean? Be no longer stubborn. There's a hardness that keeps you from obeying and it needs to be removed. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they pick up the later generations and talks about their uncircumcised hearts. They use that language to rebuke the Israelites for their sinfulness. So Moses has uncircumcised lips and the people have uncircumcised hearts. And then in Jeremiah 6 verse 10, Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah says they have uncircumcised ears that cannot listen. 
The word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. So their uncircumcised ears make them like physically deaf? No. They hear it, but they don't listen to it. You know the difference, right? You hear and you don't listen. We see that with our children. Or they can't hear anything that we say until we say ice cream. They hear and listen about ice cream. Even if it's like the store is out of ice cream. Ice cream? We're having ice cream? Right. Somehow some of them are going to be like, what's the sermon about? Ice cream. I think Pastor Peter wanted us to all get ice cream. Not what the sermon's about. And all these things, uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised heart, uncircumcised ears, these things were all written to a physically circumcised people who despite their physical circumcision were still distant from God and disqualified to rule for him. They were still sinners. So this mark of dedication was obviously not sufficient by itself because it was a mark of dedication, but it was also revealing a spiritual need. And never, as a physical act that we do, ever solved a spiritual problem just automatically. It never works that way. From birth, we are sinners as the Israelites were sinners. Our hearts are uncircumcised. They cannot and will not love God as they ought. Our ears are uncircumcised. They cannot and will not listen to and submit to God's word. Our lips are uncircumcised. They cannot and will not testify to God's grace or praise him for his wonderful works. We're the same as these people. You probably haven't considered your sinfulness in terms of being uncircumcised. That's okay. But your conscience testifies to you right now that God's word is true. You know that your desires aren't good enough. You know that you don't listen to truth whoever it comes from. You know that you don't speak what is right. And the Bible just uses circumcision to point out what you already know to be true about your sinfulness. You know you're a sinner. That's the Bible's word for it. You know that you're unworthy of God. You know that you are often just unwilling to come to him for change. But nothing spiritually significant happens automatically. And the same was true for Abraham and his descendants regarding circumcision. It's not like some surgical procedure can actually change your sinful heart. It's kind of like you may sin more <laughs> when you're hungry, uh, but eating doesn't take away your sinful heart. <laughs> I just mask it for a little bit. You may, you may be sinful because you're tired. But the nap doesn't actually take away your sinfulness. Physical things, whatever it may be, never can actually deal with spiritual problems. We kind of rest, we were talking about uh, monasticism and things like that. Monks, we were talking about in training hour today. And the people were like, man, this world is messed up. Is this world messed up? Yeah, has this world been messed up for a really long time? Yeah, right? So it's just like, man, I got to get away from these messed up people. And that sounds really good. Except... All the people who escaped the messed up people to go into the monastery, they were also messed up people, right? Sin followed them because it was in them. 
And so no matter of starving yourself or staying awake longer or not having any friends, wearing itchy clothes, right, praying 26 hours a day, right, none of those things are actually going to deal with the heart problem. Paul said that to the Colossians. Like, it's, uh, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't do these things. And he's like, man, that, that's not going to help. That's never going to make a difference. And physical circumcision could never actually solve a spiritual problem. It wasn't what it was designed to do. It was a physical mark revealing a spiritual need. Right? It was an illustration of what God's people needed to have happen. Something greater than a physical mark is needed. And it was needed from the outset. And someone greater than the people with the need have to accomplish it. That's the other piece that we see in Scripture. It wasn't just Noah and his ship. Right? It was God who saved Noah. Noah could not save himself from the flood of God's judgment. He had to, yes, he built the ship, then God closed the door and God kept him safe. Right? It, wasn't, it wasn't the blood on the door in and of itself that allowed the angel of death to pass over the people of God. It was God. And it wasn't, right, that, that just like, well, circumcise your own heart. Be like, he's not even talking about the organ. Like, how do I get to it, let alone change it? No, something greater than a physical act needs to happen, and someone greater than us needs to do it. So we read this promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, near the conclusion of God's law. I love, I love, well, I love the Bible. I love Deuteronomy 28, 29, really 27. The people get together. And they speak blessings and cursings. This is the second generation again. They speak these blessings and cursings of their relationship with God, of that Mosaic covenant. They speak it to each other again, all of the people to remind themselves of what God had called them to. And then Moses is like, all right, now that you've eaten these curses, now that you've eaten, now that you've spoken these curses to each other, let me just preview the rest of the Old Testament. You're gonna disobey. All of these curses are gonna fall on you. You're going to go into the exile that I've threatened you with. It wasn't empty threat. Then I'm going to call you back. And here's the promise that he makes. After all that has happened, so basically we're in like practically in Malachi or beyond at this point, right? The end of the Old Testament already previewed and the end of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. God makes this amazing promise. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. The work that he's going to do in you, he'll do in them also, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live a greater work than physical circumcision, which is here called spiritual circumcision, will be done by someone greater than us. And who will do it? The Lord will do it. The physical mark of circumcision revealed a spiritual need that only God could accomplish, and God promises to accomplish it by cutting out the old sinful heart and replacing it with a new heart. That's in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You ever feel hardness in your heart? 
hardness against God and his word, hardness against other people? Does it ever feel like it's just a rock, an uncaring, selfish rock in the middle of your chest? That's sin. And God says, I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to give you a, a beating heart, right? Warm and moving. I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Work that God would do in his people to change them so that they could be dedicated to him. Has God done this? Has God kept to us the promise of Ezekiel? Has God kept to us the promise of Deuteronomy? Yes. Is God doing what he promised among his people? Yes. Absolutely. Circumcision is a physical mark revealing a spiritual need fulfilled by Christ. Circumcision was fulfilled by Christ. Right? Jesus is the eternal son of God who became the human son of God to redeem and restore his people to our places as sons and daughters of God. In his humanity, Jesus received the physical mark of circumcision even though he had no spiritual need. He had no spiritual need for his heart or his lips or his ears to be circumcised. So why did he receive that mark if he didn't have the need that it was pointing to? Well, what Christ did, he did for us. What Christ did, he did for us. He did it in our place. What we needed, Christ accomplished. And if this, this sermon about circumcision sounds familiar to you, it may be because I, I preached about circumcision already, so it was totally Keith's turn. It's like if, if he sounds like he's gloating, Peter, you sound like you're bitter. I'm not, actually. Back in August of 2022, we looked at circumcision from Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and I promise I'm not just re-preaching that sermon, although I considered it. But that text very clearly states the point that I'm trying to make. Draws together so many of these texts. It says this, In Christ, you, God's people, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What was that? By putting off the, the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That which Christ accomplished on our behalf and accomplishes in us spirit applies to us is this spiritual need of our uncircumcised hearts being cut out and replaced new hearts. Christ has done that for us. Do you remember what we've said before about this idea of this union with Christ? We heard that before. Nod. You've heard of union with Christ. I hope that you've heard of this. I know we've talked about it. We talk about a lot of things. The New Testament often uses phrases like in Christ. Also, it talks about us being with Christ. And these phrases and others like them, in Christ and with Christ, speak of our relationship of union, oneness with our Savior. And the benefits of this union are that the perfection of Jesus' life on earth is given to us. We benefit from what he accomplished what he did when he obeyed, God counts for us. And his death was for us. His death was in our place. And God counts that death as a payment for a debt he didn't owe. But who owed the debt? We owed the debt. But who made the payment? 
Jesus made the payment. But it accounts for us. That's what Christ did. And then his resurrection is also our resurrection. Romans 6, if we've been united with him, union with Christ, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Kind of sounds like being cut out and removed, right? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. By the circumcision of Christ, we have new hearts. This is the new birth from above that Jesus told Nicodemus about. Nicodemus, the physically born and physically circumcised Pharisee, he needed a new birth. Spiritual circumcision is, again, the removing or cutting out of our old sinful hearts so they can be replaced with new, living, holy hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is also called regeneration. Life where there was death. Spiritual resurrection to a new life lived before God. So I'll say it again, all that we needed, Jesus has provided. All that we needed, <laughs> him. So since the physical mark revealed a spiritual need that has been fulfilled by Christ, three of the points, right? What is circumcision? A physical mark revealing a spiritual need fulfilled by Christ. Well, then what happens to the physical sign? It's done away with. Once it finds its fulfillment, its purpose is fulfilled. And when something's purpose has been fulfilled, it no longer serves its purpose. And that's what happens with circumcision. It's done away with. So we see the Christians in Acts gradually coming to grips, and it happens throughout the New Testament as well, they are gradually coming to grips with the fact that what happened in Genesis 17 has continued over thousands of years of their relationship with God is no longer necessary. They're trying to wrestle with this idea of this command that was forever and very, very significant being done away with. And again, not just cast off, but fulfilled. The gospel came first to physically circumcised Jews who through Christ received the spiritual heart circumcision that they needed. And that made sense to them. The next thing that happened didn't make sense to them because then the gospel comes to physically uncircumcised Gentiles who through Christ also received the same spiritual heart circumcision that they needed, but they aren't physically circumcised. And that's like, wait, uh, I don't think it's supposed to work that way. And God's, it is supposed to work that way. It is working that way. It has worked that way. Matter of fact, it's always, in a sense, it's always been pointing to these things. And we read of this, not only in Acts, but we read about this un, uh, like, uh, fulfillment and therefore absolving, uh, setting aside uselessness of physical circumcision in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, which is every church that Paul was writing to. Every single one, he has to go at it in a different way to be like, no, no, no. It's not about physical circumcision anymore. And sometimes it's a really big deal, like to Galatians, and sometimes it's just sort of a side remark, like to the Ephesians. Sometimes it's pointing us to Christ like he did for Colossians. 
Sometimes in Corinthians, it's kind of like, look, just however you are, it just doesn't matter. It's not like you're worse off if you were physically circumcised or better off if you're physically uncircumcised. Just stop worrying about that. So whether it's huge or whether it's small, Paul just labors to be like enough with physical circumcision. It's just done. Every church that he wrote to, though, he emphasized that physical circumcision was unnecessary for our new life in Christ. And it can be distracting could actually be harmful to us now that we have its fulfillment through Christ's death and resurrection. In case you forgot, this is a sermon that started in Genesis 17. I have not forgotten that. Can you go back there if you've tried to flip to anything else? This is another point that I want to make. Verse 14 is another kind of interesting one, right? Just like what, what was this circumcision thing? Circumcision is a physical mark revealing a spiritual need fulfilled by, fulfilled by Christ to be received by, do you remember? Faith. Verse 14, in the midst of what God is saying to Abraham before he circumcises himself or anyone else, there's this uh, warning. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's a pretty serious warning as this people is starting, right? You're reading along this, you'd be like, man, I want to be on Abraham's team because God is with him. These promised blessings that we see going through, Jesus is like, but if you aren't circumcised, that's cast, cast off. Not even if you aren't circumcised, if you won't circumcise. Circumcision even here in Genesis 17 and everywhere else was something to be received by faith. But what did this look like? Well, you have two things here. I'm going to swap out circumcision for obedience. It's a clear command that God gives, right? Just do this. Okay. So we have faith and we have obedience. And we see both in the life of Abraham. We see that he had faith in God and in his promises. We've, we've recognized that in chapter 12. Uh, we've recognized that again. You know, then he seemed to, to bomb out. Uh, but he gets back at it in chapter 13 and chapter 14. In chapter 15, we're on a roll. And then drops off again in chapter 16. It's like, oh, man. Then faith again in 17 and 18. And then we get to 20 and he acts faithlessly again. It's like, man. What is this? But we do see that he is a man of faith and Hebrews explains that to us. So Abraham has faith in God and in his promises. He does trust him to fulfill what he said. Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness back in chapter 15. So Abraham had faith in God and his promises, so he acted in obedience and circumcised himself and his household. His faith led him to obedience. And then he had these covenant blessings that he just lived in, all the things that God had promised him, land and descendants and protection, but most of all, God's presence and a relationship that God had with him. His faith resulted in obedience, right, and all of these things. But many of Abraham's descendants had no faith. So instead of faith leading to obedience, you had no faith that led to obedience, because they had no faith, but they did obey this. Abraham believed and circumcised. They didn't believe, but they still circumcised. 
They still acted in obedience, and there was this partial covenant blessing that came to them. They did get to live in the land because they were circumcised. They did have access to these type of things, but they had no real relationship with God. They didn't have the fullness of what was promised to these type of things. But if they were circumcised, kept the external details of the law, they could live in the land, be blessed with children, and then go to hell. Those faithless, circumcised Israelites who persisted in their faithlessness were never saved. And you also have no faith that results in no obedience. So no trust in God's promise revealing itself in no obedience when it came to circumcision. And this is the scenario specifically warned about in verse 14, although it flips the order. Because it says, if there is no obedience, then there is no faith. Faith obeys. No faith can still obey. But if there's no obedience, then there's no faith. Do you catch the... Want me to do it again, or does that work? I'll just say it the same way, so <laughs> I don't have another way to say it, but let me illustrate it a little bit. Uh, for Abraham's descendants, if they failed to obey when it came to circumcision, it revealed that they had no faith in God or his promises, so they were to be cut off from God's people because they remained cut off from God. No covenant blessings, no relationship with God, and we see those type of things play out in different ways. It's like, well, why would you circumcise? Because God said to, and that's an expression of faith. Why wouldn't you circumcise when God told you to? Because you don't care about what God has to offer. Do you see that? Like, that's what I'm trying to say. So their lack of obedience revealed their lack of faith. The fulfillment of Christ has radically changed who God's covenant people are. In the past, all Israelites, physically circumcised descendants of Abraham, were considered part of God's people. But that is no longer the case. No one is now born physically into God's covenant people. It can only happen through the spiritual new birth. And that then defines what real circumcision is and who the people of God really are. I think Paul goes to great lengths to show like what was is no longer and it's something new now. Romans 2, 28 to 29, no one is a Jew who is one, merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew, descendant of Abraham, is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. Romans 4.11 answers this question. Well, why was Abram justified or declared righteous? Why was he that before he was circumcised? And Paul's answer is this. Well, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. So the offspring of Abraham is Christ and believers. That's the argument that Paul takes lengths to try to prove. But without that new heart, without that faith, you are no longer connected to Abraham in any meaningful way. And the physical does nothing. And it never did. It's always faith. But the purpose of his righteous justification before circumcision was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Galatians 5, 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
In Philippians 3 also, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I think that's a, Paul makes some backhanded <laughs> remarks uh, about those who really love physical circumcision. Love the Galatians. If you're so excited about it, why don't you go ahead and, and emasculate yourself? Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because he says, because we are the circumcision. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So those who have circumcision now, the need met, are those who by faith in Christ are connected with that. So there's no circumcision physically or spiritually that is not connected with faith. Faith expressed, their faith Circumcision spiritually is the giving of a new heart. So nothing can point out from that without it happening. Faith is the, what it is to be in the people of God. Faith has always been central in God's people's relationship with him. That's the point of Hebrews 11. And just like God's command to Abraham to circumcise himself and his offspring, obedience is also important for us to express our faith. Maybe that didn't make sense. My notes get a little bit funny here. I have no idea what happened. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Faith and obedience. Abraham may not have understood. I, there's really, I don't think, any way he could have understood everything that circumcision was doing. God gave him a simple act, simple command to obey. Abraham obeyed it. Why? Because he had faith. But he didn't have a full knowledge of everything that I just walked you through of what Christ would do. But because he had a need that God had already met, he was willing to obey. So there's faith, and then there's obedience. And just because the obedience required by the faith has changed, we don't circumcise, that doesn't mean that faith doesn't still obey. Your faith in no way requires you to circumcise anybody. But that doesn't mean that there, aren't, there isn't obedience that sh- will also flow from your faith. So if you have faith, you will obey what God says. You can obey externally without faith. But if you care nothing about obedience to God's command, like with these Israelites, it would show your lack of care for God's promises. It shows a lack of faith. Obedience does not always show faith. But disobedience does show a lack of faith. So we need to consider these type of things. There's a difference, though, between faith, and I think I've, I've tried to labor on this before, so, but I, I think it is important. There's a difference between what faith is and what faith does. There's a difference between the essence of faith, trusting in Christ apart from works, and what faith does, expressing itself in prayer and praise and confession and worship. If you have faith, those things will follow, but you can fake them. You can go through the motions and say the words and do the stuff without the faith that drives that, but if you have no expressions, then why on earth could you claim that you have the faith? Marriage covenant versus wedding rings. It's not a biblical piece. It's not unbiblical. It just is not what the Bible talks about. Right, but is this the same thing as my marriage to Leanne? It's not. 
right? But if, but if I'm actively seeking to never wear a wedding ring in certain scenarios, what does that say about my marriage faithfulness? What if I have no fingers? Can I still be married? <laughs> I can, right? Impossible for me to wear the sign. And Leanne's like, well, then I'm done with you. You won't show faithfulness. I'm like, I can't show faithfulness that way. Yeah, I know. Keith, stop ruining my illustrations, man. It's not the same thing. Faith versus prayer. What are the other examples of this? Love for God versus love for our neighbors or for one another. Which is which is central? Oh, love for God. But if you say you love God and you don't love your neighbor, then how does the love of God reside in you? If you love God, you will love your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your enemy. You cannot love God and take care of other people. But if you won't love your neighbor, brother, sister, or enemy, then you don't love God. Do you see? Scripture erupts in praise, in song, doesn't it? Isn't it all over the place? Because a heart that loves God, right, bursts forth into praise. Now, your bursting forth may not be as loud as my bursting forth. But I've got the piano like pointed right at me and I'm already a loud individual. So my praise is always loud. Got made fun of once in college. My mouth was so big singing. I was like, I was just excited. I don't know. So now I'm like, well, how do I sing loud with a quieter mouth? Like, whatever. If I am grateful for what God has done, I know it, I see it, right? That will erupt forth into songs of praise. I can love songs without loving God. But if I'm like, I don't want to sing. I don't want to love God. I don't care what he's done for me. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to praise him for it. It's like, well then, are you aware of it? Like, have you received that? A love for God will result in a meeting together with God's people for worship, for encouragement, for confession. So if we are of the people of God, then we will obediently gather with the people of God some people who don't care about God gather with the people of God. It's not the same thing, but if you're like, I don't want to be with God's people ever. I don't care about this. This is insignificant. Then how do you have a relationship with Christ if you have no desire to express that with the ones that Christ loves? When he has called you to do it, do you see? That's not the same thing. They're two different things, but it's just like, why would, if you'd be like, Abram, Circumcised. Be like, well, why would you do that? Oh, because God said. He didn't have to understand all the aspects to it. It could just have been a simple piece of obedience. It was a lot more than that. It was a physical mark, right? Pointing to a, revealing a spiritual need that would be fulfilled by Christ in ways that Abraham could never have fathomed, but he received it by faith nonetheless. It wasn't arbitrary. And we're forgiven people, aren't we? I think this makes sense for us, these type of distinctions, I'm trying to kind of labor for you using circumcision as a springboard to help us understand how Jesus wraps up that Lord's Prayer. 
forgive us our debts or trespasses or however you memorized it as we forgive our debtors or those who have committed trespasses against us. And he continues the prayer and we stop the memorization and then we have how Jesus finished it. Because if you will not forgive those who have sinned against you, how does the forgiveness live in you? You are unforgiven. A forgiven person by God will forgive. And there are people in the world with no knowledge, relationship, or submission to God who will still forgive. That doesn't earn them forgiveness. But if you won't forgive, and I just feel like I need to have my whole heart cut out again. Jesus, just cut it out again. It feels like the whole thing is stone. And he says, it's not stone. I already did that. But that flesh lingers. Sin's still there. It's not done. We're somehow, we're a two-hearted people. There's the new heart, and then there's like all of the things that that old heart corrupted. It's still there. We're still battling it. God's still at work in us. Just be like, well, just cut the whole thing out. And he says, that's not what needs to be done. But your feet do need to be washed. I'm not gonna cut out your heart. Uh, but there's some other stuff that I need to cut out. And that's the work that God's doing in us. So as you see, right, these pieces, faithlessness, disobedience, revealing faithlessness, right, don't be discouraged to the point of it's kind of like, well, then I must just be an unbeliever because if you see that with grief and you long to be changed, then that's repentance and repentance is a fruit of faith. But callousness, the fruit of unbelief, don't live in callousness. Turn from your sin. Come back to Christ to have your feet washed. Or those other little spots. It's like the tumor is gone and you've got all those little spots and all those spots need to be attacked by the physician of our souls and he's good at the surgery that he does. Even though physical circumcision no longer important at all, we do still have that same spiritual need that has been fulfilled by Christ and that is received by faith. Thankful that the Lord is doing this work in us. You are, Lord, doing this work in us. Our need remains and abounds. You began this work in us, a good work, and you have promised that you will carry it on to completion. So our loving God and Father, you who have committed yourself to us eternally, sent your son to die for us, continue this uh, circumcising work in your children. We could live in this relationship with you now and forever. That day, all sin will be gone. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, to bring that about. Amen.